you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of 1 Timothy. Today we will finish our look at 1 Timothy, wrap it up here in chapter 6, and Lord willing, next Sunday we'll begin 2 Timothy. So we'll move right on into the next letter. Um, been making our way through this, which is one of three in a corpus of letters, a, a collection of three letters called the Pastoral Epistles. And that's because Timothy and Titus were both pastors in different places that Paul was addressing them in terms of how they were supposed to be leading their respective churches. Timothy kind of as a stand-in for Paul in Ephesus until Paul could get there and Titus in his charge. Uh, these men, uh, Timothy, we know, was a younger man, and Paul was exhorting him on what his pastoral ministry should look like and how the church should look and how the church should ultimately function. So we're bringing that to a close this morning by looking at this final paragraph in 1 Timothy. We've, we've been engaged in many, in many topics here in prayer, how we do church, qualifications for leaders, and how we treat one another, and so forth and so on. And so Paul is now bringing this to a close in preparation for what will be the final letter to Timothy and what most scholars think is Paul's final letter, period, is 2 Timothy. So without further delay, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. This morning we will close out the chapter by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant Word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So, ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we come before Your Word now hungry and thirsty, and I pray that the, our hunger and thirst will be quenched by Your righteousness that is present in Your Word. Renew us, I pray. Transform our minds and hearts that we may hear Your Word this morning and never be the same again. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. I'm sure you have heard or said the statement, practice what you preach. It's an old cliche, one which we use constantly. Now, when we say that, of course, what we have to remember is no one consistently practices what they preach, or else we wouldn't have a cliche saying practice what you preach. Um, we, tend, we can say that. We can say, hey, or, or another one, another one, put your money where your mouth is. We would say that, and, I, and it's this idea of you talk a game, but can you live it out? Now, unfortunately, we don't always practice what we preach because we have sin struggles. We, we, we preach a message, and we have a message of truth that we believe, but because of sin, we constantly find ourselves in the rub of knowing what's right and not doing it or doing something completely opposite. So in my time as a pastor, just in ministry in general, uh, that has spanned now over two decades, uh, what I've learned is people tend to believe better than they live. Does that make sense to you? We believe better than we live often. Like we have a good belief set, but we don't often live it out. And so often our lives don't measure up to our standard of belief. We profess one thing, 
but our lives will reflect something differently. Here's a case in point. This is a pretty, this is a low-hanging fruit. This will be easy to grasp. We tend to talk about the sovereignty of God, especially in our tradition. We talk about the sovereignty of God, and God is in control of all things, and God has our very hairs are numbered. He knows every grain of sand on the earth. And if that is true, we should be the least worrying people on the planet. And yet, we worry. You know why? Because we don't always practice what we preach, because we, we believe better than we live because our lives don't often reach up to the standard of belief. This is a human problem. It's a Christian problem. It's a human problem. See, you and I, we are called, we are called to proclaim godliness and gospel truth. It's not just my job as the preacher of the chapel. It is your job as well as a believer to proclaim godliness and gospel truth. But we also are to practice those things. We are to practice what we proclaim. In fact, Jerry Bridges several years ago wrote a fantastic book called The Practice of Godliness. That's where I got my sermon title from this morning. The practice of godliness is exactly what we're called to do. We're to actively live out what we say is true. If God is love, as it is told us in 1 John, how are we trying to embody that principle and live that out? If God is gracious toward us, how are we trying to embody those principles and live that out? Well, the thing is, is we believe that God is love. We believe that God is gracious. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is righteous. And so often the rub comes when people take a step back and see how we're living our lives. I know that's true for me. I'll, I'll put myself out there. That's true of Brad. So we're n- this is not a call to perfection, as it were, but rather fidelity, faithfulness. That simple yet very difficult word, faithfulness. God is calling you and me to be faithful And so if Scripture is true, and it is, we have to live like it's true. Paul has spent this letter, this letter of 1 Timothy, addressing false teachers, how we should treat each other, how we should interact with each other, proper roles in the church, and a few other tertiary issues. But the overarching theme in all that, you've heard me say it a million times, the overarching theme in all of that is faithfulness. Timothy, be faithful. Elders, be faithful. Deacons, be faithful. Widows, be faithful. Teachers, be faithful. That is the overarching message of 1 Timothy, and we could argue one of the overarching messages of the Bible. Why does God present us with characters, heroes that have feet of clay and they fail? Because He wants us to see what happens in human history when we don't choose faithfulness. We see the ramifications, the consequences of our lack of fidelity. And you've got obvious ones like David and Bathsheba, and then there's, there's some not so obvious ones. And so when we think about what Paul is doing with Timothy, young Timothy, young brother, young man in the ministry, here's what I would impart to you. The best thing you can do for your people is be faithful to the truth. Be faithful in your teaching. Be faithful in how you live. Appoint faithful men to be leaders. Appoint faithful servants who will serve faithfully. Develop a ministry among your widows where fidelity is the descriptor, where we are called to be faithful. Brad, you keep saying the word faithful. What is it? What does it mean to be faithful? Well, in the simplest definition I could give you, faithful is taking, faithfulness is taking the truth of Scripture 
and applying it to our lives. So faithfulness is taking the truth of Scripture and applying it to our lives. So proclaiming truth, living truth. Truth into the mind, truth comes out in the action. That's another faithfulness can be synonymous with, used interchangeably with godliness. Because if you are godly, you are being faithful. And if you are lacking fidelity, you are lacking godliness. And so when we think about Paul's instruction to Timothy, we could say, Paul say, Timothy, young man, be godly. Be faithful. Be defined by truth, not by what is false. You and I are never going to be perfectly godly on this side of heaven, never. But we're going to struggle with flesh. We're going to struggle with our own selfishness. We're going to struggle with the, the times that we don't want to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after Christ. But godliness is the aim of the Christian life. It's exactly what we should be striving for, so that we should constantly feel a sense of need for repentance for not pursuing godliness as we ought. I'll start with myself on that one. But here's what I want you to, here's what I want for us to understand, what we need to understand. Godliness is more than simple morality. At the very least, it is that. A godly person is a moral person. But beloved of God, it's so much more than just morality. You can have a moral atheist, but you're never going to have a godly one. You can have a moral secularist, but you're never going to have a godly one because, see, the godliness goes beyond just doing what is moral. That's built into our humanity. That's what makes a sociopath stand out. They have no capacity for empathy and morality. They think only in terms of what satisfies their appetites. You are not created that way. See, we have this issue of godliness where it's more than being nice and kind and sweet and gentle. It, it can be those things. But godliness is living in the imitation of Christ. So when we think about godliness, it's only possible for people who have been given, who've been made new creations, right? If you're an old creation, not made new in Christ, i.e. you've been made new per Paul's uh, statement to the Corinthian church, then godliness is not only possible, it's expected. We are called to live in the imitation of Christ. Well, how do we imitate Christ? Well, I, I think coming back to the Word, well, the, the first thing that pops to mind is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out what it looks like to live a life that honors Christ, that honors Yahweh, that honors the Trinity. So when we think about godliness, the imitation of Christ in both word and deed, and if that's convicting to you, it is supremely convicting to me because when I look at godliness through those lenses, I can see how far short I fall. But here's what we can't do. We can't just say, well, we're never going to get it right, so let's just stay where we are. No. We get to a point to where we say, this is not acceptable. I can't live this way. God, give me grace to pursue Christ more and more and more. And so Paul ends this first letter exhorting Timothy, but wealthy folks, <laughs> wealthy Christians, hey, this is how you should relate with and use your money. He tells Timothy, oh, Timothy, by the way, in case you haven't gotten it yet, I want you to be faithful. That's his last word to Timothy. It's all about Timothy's faithfulness. Timothy, be faithful. Paul says wealthy folks should be faithful with their money. Timothy says, 
But Paul says Timothy should be faithful in his charge. And so when we think about the simple call to faithfulness, the simple call to godliness in the Christian life, we can't really overlook it, as, as I've said. Godliness is synonymous with faithfulness. But if the aim is faithfulness, we'll be godly. And if the aim is godliness, we will be faithful, as I said a moment ago. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see in our text this morning, and it's this, that hope in God must lead to a godly life, that hope in God must lead us to have a godly life. What Paul is doing here is he's addressing some issues that are just part of Christianity, humility, generosity, and fidelity. Those are things that should describe us or be a part of our character, that we should be humble people, we should be generous people, and we should be faithful people. And so the Christian life has to be defined by humility. Why? Because we're absolutely dependent on God. In fact, if you look at the way the world peddles its ideology, what does it do? It separates you from any notion that you're dependent on anything. You can be what you want to be, do what you want to do, go where you want to go, have what you want to have. And you can do it at other people's expense because they don't matter as much as you do. What that does to the human psyche is it says, I am, as the poem says, I am the, the captain of my soul and the master of my fate, i.e., I become God to myself. And that's not right. None of us are independent. Even the people who boast, who boast of their independence, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, are probably some of the most dependent people in the world. Because when things are muddied, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we want to see them. That's why we need the truth of Scripture to come cleanse those lenses again and again and again so that we see things as they are. Paul begins this little paragraph here, or as he's bringing this whole letter to a close, addressing those who are wealthy in the world's goods. He's giving specific instruction regarding their wealth. So what Paul says here is, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, I'll stop right there for a second. That word charge or command is an express command. It's as I've used, I've told you before, it's an imperative verb. And what that means is, it's express command. Paul is not telling Timothy, suggesting that he charge the wealthy. He's telling Timothy what to do. But it's written in such a way that Timothy is to command and keep commanding them, charge and keep charging them. Do you know why? Because Paul understands human nature. Why will, why will Timothy need to constantly remind people of their station in life? Because we forget, or we choose not to remember, or we just run afoul of it because we want to do what we want to do. So he's beginning with, 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 uh, with the wealthy people, as for the rich in this present age, charge them and keep charging them not to be haughty and not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he is instructing the wealthy, A, as I said a moment ago, how to relate to their wealth. But he then says, hey, be humble. Why do you think he might have to tell somebody to be humble? Well, it's possible because of sin that people get to a higher station in life and entitlement sets in and they think they're better. And Paul is reminding Timothy that we're all bare before the Lord. We all need God's grace and remind them not to be haughty, not to think more highly of themselves than they ought. I mean, he tells us God gives us all things, and so we read back into that first comment, why should a wealthy person not be uh, haughty? Because what they have has been given from God. They have been given the opportunity to be stewards with the world's wealth. 
it's a high calling and privilege. So don't let money make you think that you're better than you are. So when we think about it, and when we look at wealth through the lenses of Scripture, wealth is a, is a blessing to use, not an entitlement to abuse. Now, notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say, hey, Timothy, tell the wealthy people that's bad. They should impoverish themselves. No, no, no. Wealth is fine. It's a blessing from God. Paul is simply telling Timothy, remind those who are wealthier in your congregation or at Ephesus to use their resources as a blessing to others. And we think about anything that we're given from God, wealth or whatever it is, it's never meant purely for self-service. It is meant to be submitted to the glory of God and used in the kingdom of Christ. And I am thankful that over the years I've known people of means who are some of the godliest people I know. And they very much take it seriously to be generous and sharing and to see that God has blessed them and to use that for the good and help of the church. When we think about any resource that we're given, it is meant to be a personal blessing, but if we think about the overarching function of our lives, if we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, then we start thinking about the gifts that we use or the gifts that we've been given or the resources we have, and then they work in that framework as well. So wealth or whatever, whatever gift we have is meant to serve God and is meant to love our neighbor well. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Just remind those who have means to use it for God's good or for God's glory and for the good of their neighbor. And then he says this. He tells them, do not set, uh, and tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God. It's interesting that Paul says it that way. Tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He could have said almost anything there, but he chose the phrase uncertainty of riches. Why? Well, if you've studied history and you've studied market crashes and stuff, you know that on a night somebody has gone to bed very rich and woken up very poor, and it happens like that. You know why? Because money is here today and gone tomorrow. Money comes and goes. But there's something, when we're going to start talking about hope and what it means to hope, the object of any hope has to be objective. It cannot be subjective. Well, this is the problem of sin. This is the problem of idolatry. Somebody is feeling hurting and lost and downtrodden and all these things. And what do they do? They try to put their hope in X, Y, or Z. That is uncertain. That cannot give what they need. That is why it leads to more and more and more problems. So Paul says, no, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Hope in the Lord. Continue to, to have the object of your hope as the immovable, immortal, righteous God. And God is a great object of our hope, but on God, why? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Whatever riches we accumulate in this world, and, and if you do, God bless you, they pale in comparison to the riches of God's blessing that He gives His people. Because so far as I know, money can't give salvation. Money can't give peace with God. Money can't give righteousness. Money can't lead to holiness. Money can't proclaim truth. Money can't restore life. God can and does all these things, and He does them abundantly. 
And so He is the proper object of our hope because He gives richly, not miserly, not with a sense of withholding, lovingly, lavishly, richly. And look, at now this is remarkable to me. Literally, He provides us with everything for our enjoyment or everything to enjoy. What does that tell us as Christians? <laughs> it's not, it's not, we're not more holy if we look more dour. We're not more holy if we eschew creation as if, oh, creation is bad. I've, I've got to, I've got to uh, I'm, I'm going to define myself by everything that I don't do. And that's exactly the opposite of what God tells us to do. Are there things we shouldn't do? Yeah. There's a ton of stuff we shouldn't do. But creation and God's gifts are meant to be enjoyed. They're meant to bring joy to our hearts. They're meant to put a smile on our face. They're meant to refresh us in spirit and soul. They're meant to give us joy even in the midst of lament. They're meant to give us joy in the midst of even our pains and hardships. They're meant to give us hope when we feel like we're twisting in the wind, knowing that we're really tethered to Christ. They're meant to give us peace when everything around us is in turmoil. They're meant to give us grace when we are losing the battles that we are fighting. So they're meant for our joy. The resources that God gives, the life that God gives, is for our joy. So when we live our lives, beloved, it's not out of order for us to say God actually desires that His people enjoy life. It's not a drudgery. It feels like it sometimes. And there's sometimes, uh, you know, if you're like me, maybe there's sometimes on the morning you wake up and you think, I just want to go back to sleep until all this nonsense passes. I do feel that way. And yet, I'm convicted by the reality of this verse that God provides us with everything to enjoy. To not be mean, to not be a Scrooge, to not be whatever, but to be joy-filled. And the more we show gratitude to God for what we do have, it's funny the way this works, the more thankful we are, usually the more joyful we are. When I am focused on what God has given me and the riches of it, and I'm thankful for that, I find that I am often way more joyful. So Paul builds on this. Technically in Greek, uh, 17, 18, and 19 are one sentence. So Paul builds on this, still in reference to the wealthy, those rich in the present age. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, generous in sharing. So what does it mean here? Paul is driving at the overarching idea is wealth as a means to aid the possessor of said wealth and his or her good works. That's what it's meant to do, is to aid a person in their good works. But he uses this very common, just very general, they are to do good, and then he kind of fleshes that out, to be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. So money is nice, and it's a great blessing, but the real riches of any person, wealthy and, and non-wealthy alike, are a riches in rich in good works, that there's plentiful good works. So as much as we are saved by faith through grace, and that is absolutely true, we don't merit our way to heaven, we don't earn God's gift of, of salvation, our works matter, and our works have value in the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul says here that we should be rich in good works. They have a wealth of them. 
What kind of good works? Generosity, ready to share, ready to give, ready to, to bless other people, put ourselves in situations where we can aid other people. And you know why Paul will do this for us as a church? I think to fight the general human propensity to say what's mine is mine. Because when we start looking at the early church, what Jesus did for us, he says, what's mine is yours. My life, my righteousness, my peace is yours. He demonstrates for us what it means to share and to give. And in fact, he didn't just give us every good blessing from himself. He took everything bad from us and put it on himself and shows us what it means to not only be generous and sharing, but to also be sacrificial. So Paul says to Timothy, remind them to be generous, ready to share, ready to give, to bless others, to fight that internal thing that we can deal with sometimes, or what's mine is mine. And so this says, if God blesses us with abundance, which Paul intimates here, if God blesses us with abundance, don't think of abundance as simply monetary, abundant life. The question we constantly have to ask ourselves, how can I be a blessing to others? And here's what I'll say. You don't have to be wealthy in the world's goods to be a blessing to other people. How can we, in our station in life where we are planted, be a blessing to other people? That's a question we must constantly ask ourselves. How can I bless others? How can I be generous with what I have? How can I share my life? How can I share with what I have? Because all Christians should be defined by generosity in some way, shape, or form. In fact, in the early days of the faith, generosity and hospitality were absolutely essential. Lives depended on it, on people being willing to take in a stranger into their house and share their table and share their resources because this was a professing fellow believer who needed help. That should be how we're defined, is by our generosity, by our willingness to be sharers with other people. And Paul says when this is right, this thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, he's getting at something that Jesus taught about, about storing up treasure in heaven where moth does not eat or rust does not destroy. Paul is using a similar idea or using that same terminology to talk about a very similar idea. So, storing up for themselves uh, treasure as a good foundation for the future, what is, he, what is he reminding us? He's reminding everybody our worth is not in what we have. Our worth is located in heaven. And so, we want to live our lives with a heavenly mindset with a heavenly focus, so that I'm not just doing good so God will be nice to me. I'm living well, I'm generous, I'm sharing because I'm living in the imitation of Christ and because I'm locating my worth in heaven. I'm storing up tre my treasure in heaven for the future when I stand before the Lord. And so when we think about where do we locate our worth, it should never be here. What is the good foundation that Paul is talking about here? The life of Christ, that we are built on the life of Christ, not this world. Any wealth that we can amass here on, on this earth pales in comparison to the wealth 
of God that he has in store for us. If you haven't read the book of Revelation in a while, I would encourage you to flip through it and read it and be reminded, yeah, there are cycles of judgment, life is hard, but the day is coming. The day is coming where God melts it and everything rolls back and the new heavens and the new earth are established and life is consummated forever. A day of immense wealth, wealth that cannot be counted, and it's located in the kingdom of heaven, not on this earth. And so when we think about what we're called to do, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what? That which is truly life, real life, what's true wealth. When we think about truly life, why does Paul specify that? Because there's a message, there's, a, there's all sorts of philosophies out there that offer life. But true life is only in Christ, only in Christ. If you're looking for uh, life outside of Christ this morning, you're never going to find it, ever. Everything will disappoint. Everything will let us down. Everything will prove to be a colossal failure because the things of this world cannot save us. Do you know why? (laughs) Because the things of this world do not have the capacity to give life. What we need, when you come to Christ, when you came to Christ as someone who was lost, what you needed was to be a new creation. And that can only happen in Christ. You were being translated on those, whenever you were converted, for those of you who are, whenever you were converted, you were translated from being fundamentally a sinner to being fundamentally a new creation, a holy one, or what the Bible will often call saint. And so when we think about that, why is it important for us to, to, to understand what true life is? Because that's the true life that we need. Everything else is a blessing uh, to boot. So when we think about riches or resources or whatever, riches can bring glory to God when they're submitted to Him, but they're never going to bring life. The truth of the gospel will bring life and new creation. No other message will. So if you ever hear in certain situations, uh, people of the Baha'i faith are very fond of telling everybody all religions lead to the same place. No, they don't. The only life is in Christ. Period. Case closed. Paul brings this letter to a close by giving this one final charge to Timothy. And what he's doing is he's reiterating Timothy's calling. So, again, you have this imperative verb, guard the deposit entrusted to you. It's an express command. You know what he's telling him? Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Hold on to what is sacred. I would tell every Christian within the sound of my voice this morning, that is a charge to you and to me. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Hold on to what is sacred. Much like Jesus talks of the pearl of great price, the true gospel message is the pearl of great price, and we have it. We never compromise it. He's telling Timothy, you've been entrusted with this. You've been entrusted with this beautiful message, this rich revelation. So guard it. That's the overarching ministry and message of Timothy's life. He's, he's to guard as faithful. It's been entrusted to him. 
And in so doing, he's to avoid all the irreverent babble and contradictions. That's what Paul thinks of false teaching, irreverent babble, contradictions, because that's what it is. Let God be true and everything else be a lie. Because Timothy is to avoid this. It's evil. It's a perversion of the truth. It's not what is truly life, you see. It's not what is true knowledge. Don't you love how, how we have these two ideas that are side by side? Take hold of that which is truly life. Avoid the irreverent babbling contradictions to avoid what is falsely called knowledge. So the Christian is to be about true life and true knowledge. Because there is a knowledge out there that's false. It's a knowledge that arrays itself against Jesus, that claims to be wise, that claims to be true, that claims to be good, but it deviates from the message of Christ, so it's false. Any deviation from the message of Christ is false. And we have to stand there. And that's why people will call uh, faithful Christians bigots or hateful or all, all manner of things. And we're none of that, or at least we shouldn't be. But it's because we cannot compromise what we know is true. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's the seriousness of this, that the false message leads away from the faith. So when we think about false messages, beloved of God, they are never, ever, ever harmless, ever. No matter how clear we are on the message, no matter how obvious it looks to us, may we never make light of it. If the, if the prosperity gospel looks ridiculous to you, it does to me too. But never make light of it, because if you follow and you see how many souls are actually swerving from what is truly knowledge and truly life, because a false message that we make jokes about is actually effective in leading people astray. We need to take false teaching seriously, because it has every false doctrine has the power to send souls to hell, and we've got to stand for life and truth. So when we think about the truth. The truth is worth living for, and in some senses, in some cases, I should say, in every sense, but in some cases, it's worth dying for. We stand on truth because it's the one thing that doesn't change. <laughs> I love the simple benediction that Paul gives, grace be with you. He doesn't need to expound everything he's just written to Timothy. He understands there is one essential need for all this to happen the way it should grace. Without grace, none of this would be accomplished. But I love this. It doesn't come out in English. It doesn't translate well. Grace with you, grace be with you, that pronoun you there is plural. It's not singular. He wasn't speaking directly to Timothy at that point. He's speaking to the church. Grace be with you all, we could say, as you put these precepts into practice. When we think about grace, it's a word we use. It's very common. Grace is necessary. It's meant to shape our lives, our labors, and our loves. We think about grace. It is God's unmerited favor. It's God's covenant love. It's God's, uh, God's willingness to impart what we need to do the things that we need to do. It's God's charity. It's God's invitation into His presence. It's so many things. And it should shape everything that we do, how we live, how we labor, how we love, 
should be shaped by grace. I mean, Jesus or John tells us you, we know what love is because Christ loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice for us. How do we know how to love? We see it in Christ. How do we know what grace is? We see it in Christ. And when we think about living without grace, if we live without grace, we're going to seek to live by our own merit. Now everything I do is of vital importance because I have to earn it. Some Christians live that way. They live in, in, imprisoned in this notion that I have to earn it. So when we try to live without grace, we think I have to live by my own merit. When we try to labor without grace, those labors will not be faithful. They will be faithless. Les Mis is a, is a great example of that. Javert. He has no capacity to show grace, and he ultimately has to kill himself. I'm sorry if I just ruined the story for you. Because his labors are so built on merit that they are faithless. They are loveless. They are hopeless. They are merciless. They're just mean. And if we try to love without grace, oh, beloved, our love will be wanting. If love covers a multitude of sins, that is not a graceless love. That is a love that says, I will love you whether you merit it or not, whether you deserve it or not, whether I feel it in the moment or not, because that is a love that is informed by grace. Without grace, we will never follow the precepts of the Bible. Christian hope should always lead to Christian virtue. It's easy to live hopeless in a world of despair, and we are in a world full of despair. Our world is filled with it. I'm sure you struggle, as I do, oftentimes to not be overwhelmed by the despair and at times to give in to it a little bit and forget that we have hope beyond this world. There's something beyond even what we can see with our eyes that gives us hope. When humans give in to that despair, we see all kinds of results. Presently, modern-day issues, people giving in to despair, we see addiction. Of course, that's been around for a long time. We see people despairing over their bodies. So they mutilate them, thinking, this will give me the peace that I need. And we see all sorts of insidious, evil things that are peddled as hope in a world of despair. The reason that despair leads to these things is because despair leads humanity to sin because it compels us to medicate with godless things. Hope, on the other hand, leads to virtue, or it should. When, when we know Christ is true and we hope truly in His goodness, it compels us to live in a way that honors Him, or it should. And when we think about hope, hope is not the absence of lament, rather. Hope is a constant trust that even in hard seasons, Christ is true and reigning. That even in hard seasons, Christ is true and He's reigning. Hope says, I don't have to give in to this because I have something far richer. I pray that I will believe that in hard times. I pray that you will believe that in hard times. Because when we all cling to this, it will compel us to live every day for Christ. Christ, our, love, our hope in life and death. We just sang about it a few moments ago. Beloved of God, 
we have hope. Let's don't settle for anything less. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the book of 1 Timothy and the, the truth therein, the richness of it, the beauty of it, the passion of it, the hope in it. I pray that we would be people who live with hope. Oh, God, forgive us, those of us who give in to despair and we, we choose things that don't help the despair. They fan into flame its lies, its hopelessness. I pray that we would genuinely hope in you and choose hope over any other solution. And Father, remind us in those moments of pain and hardship and lament that your hope is far better than any other thing we could reach for. And so, Father, give us grace to know you, to love you, and to practice what it means to live for you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.